0: So welcome to Element Services, whether you are live streaming or watching on demand or wherever it is. It's interesting. This is actually Labor Day weekend when we're recording this one. Normally what happens on Labor Day weekend is we do baptisms and have a big party, but it's still COVID and it kind of makes us a little sad. We can't get together, but we are planning to do this at some point with all of you. So Happy Labor Day weekend to all of you. Uh, we would encourage you after the 11 o'clock service, if you are live streaming, we're going to do a little thing called talking element where we go through and talk about the message and the, and the main points and the questions that come about in that. Also, this morning, if you are watching on the live stream at 9 a.m., we are also doing the sermon live. So you're not going to get that. You're going to get this version that hopefully looks all nice and cleaned up and I, Wash my hair and everything. But if you want to come at 9 a.m. to a Sunday morning, we're just doing the message live out on the patio. You're more than welcome to come to that. If you're watching on demand, well... There you go, on demand. Forget I said anything whatsoever. Uh, If you are newer, newer to Element and live streams and all this, we would encourage you to download an app for a smart device. It is called Uversion. And when you download Uversion, you click on more and then events in Uversion. If you're around us locally, we will come up by GPS in that device. If not, you can type in 93455 and then we will come up and you will get the sermon notes, the verses, the questions, the announcements. All that we're going to go through in today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. And if you would like, you can stand for the reading of God's word or you can sit where you are. But this is the reading of God's word is Acts 26, verse one. And it says this. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Let's pray. Father, this morning. Or Whenever we're watching, God, I ask that you would take us and move us to be a people who trust in you, that we would speak of your goodness and grace in our lives in ways that people around us would understand. Uh, they would hear what you have done in and through us and what you continue to do, and we would glorify you with our lives. Teach us to be a people who can make a good and honest and real defense of who you are in our lives. Amen. Amen. So we are going through this series. We're calling it Acts Part 2. Uh, Acts Part 2 is the second part of the book of Acts, chapter 13 through the end. And it essentially follows the life of this guy named Paul and what happened to him. Now, today when we look at the Apostle Paul, we think he is a really, really big deal. Back when Paul was alive, a lot of people didn't think Paul was a big deal because a lot of people haven't even heard about who he was. But today, most scholars will tell you that Paul has more to do with Christianity in the world than maybe even Jesus does. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say something like that. We are saved by Jesus, by his grace, by what he did. Jesus changed the world. But what they are saying is that Jesus used Paul and his passion and his drive and who he was to move move the gospel out into the world in a way that no one really ever had before. And now I believe that is by the work and the power of God's spirit. But like God has always said, he is going to use his image bearers in the world to proclaim who he is. And that's what he does with Paul. Now, as an example, it's not comparable at all, but there is this lady named Linda Perry. You probably never heard of Linda Perry, but Linda Perry wrote a lot of songs that you may have heard on the radio. Like at one point, Linda Perry writes this song called Get This Party Started. Then she gives it to a person called Pink, and Pink records this song, and it becomes a huge hit for Pink. Maybe you haven't heard the song at all, but Pink got the party started. Now, what God does is He proclaims the first gospel all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. But really, when Paul comes along, Paul takes and he sings that song to the entire world. The first time you meet Saul Paul, he is overseeing the execution of one of the first church deacons, a guy named Stephen. And you see in the early chapters of Acts when you meet Paul that he's breathing vehemence and anger. He wants to stop Christians and he continues to escalate in his anger. He is opposed to anyone proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah or relationship with God to anybody that's not In the Hebrew lineage. And what you see from Saul is that Saul was a very religious person. He believed he was on God's mission. As Saul goes out to kill Christians, he doesn't do that because he's an atheist, he does it because he's very pious. You also see that Saul is zealous. Paul has passion and drive. He is at the top of his class in rabbinical studies. So he studies long, he studies hard, he had a calling, and he's going to accomplish that calling no matter what happens. And then you also see that Paul was very spiritual. Paul would go to the temple, he would worship God, he was under temple authority. But Paul, just like so many people today who are religious and zealous and spiritual, Paul was lost in his own self-centered world of sin, much like many people today are. And when Jesus saves Paul, he matures Paul into a giant of the Christian faith. And as I said, apart from Jesus, Paul is really the most influential person in the history of the Christian church. Like, can you imagine the United States without George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or the Civil Rights Movement without Martin Luther King? See, through all we look at in Paul's life in these chapters, you have to understand that that public ministry where Paul went around and planted all these churches, it really took place in a span of about 10 years ask yourself what you've done in the last 10 years. I mean, I don't want to make you feel bad because obviously nothing really compares. During this 10 years, Paul would walk on average 20 miles a day for those 10 years. What would you walk 20 miles a day for? If you're the Sullivans, it's to get to Disneyland, but maybe for Klondike Bar, would you walk 20 miles a day? I don't know. At the end of his life, Paul has gone through so much stuff. He has been stoned and flogged for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a complete difference in how he lives his life after meeting Jesus he'll be shipwrecked. he'll be set adrift in the open sea his reputation becomes shot all the things that he used to do to Christians are now done to him but he perseveres because he understood the love and God's calling in his life Paul Barnett says that Paul was the first Christian theologian and arguably the best in the history of the church Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. And while Paul wrote most of the books in the New Testament, uh, this guy named Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, provides the most content. And it is widely held by most scholars that Paul is the one who led Luke to trust in Jesus. So without Paul, we don't even have most of our New Testament. Paul, the guy, starts off as a killer of Christians and ends up killed for being a Christian. Now why do I tell you all this as we start? Because today what's going to happen is Paul is going to give his testimony again. And what you see in Paul's testimony is that he is constantly referring back to his old life and where he came from. The things that God pulled him out him out from where he was at and that God saved him from those things and gave him new life. And so we look at all the great things that Paul did, but Paul looks at his old life and he will say of all the people I know in the entire world of all the sinners I'm the worst. In 1 Corinthians fifteen nine and 10, Paul says this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. In Ephesians 3:8, Paul will also say, of this gospel I was made a minister. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And when Paul says these things about being the worst, that is not some morbid self-introspection and depression. Now, I do tell you a lot of element how terrible we are, but I tell you that so we understand the great grace that we have received in God rescuing and saving us. But a lot of people will say this is the problem with Christianity. It gives people a low self-esteem because you tell them how bad they are. Again, that is not why I tell you how bad we are, and it's not why Paul many times would focus on the things that he used to do in his life when he told his testimony. It would be so that we would realize where we came from and the grace that God has given us, and we'd surrender in humility to Jesus just like Paul, this is why understanding the reality of the gospel is so important for every single one of us. Because the gospel on one hand says, yes, we, we are the worst. We, we're terrible. There, there's no difference between us and anybody else on this planet. We are all on the same level playing field. Whether you're a singer in a boy band or Mother Teresa, we have all at different places in our lives run away from God trying to do our own Thing. That's where we all are. We have lived our lives different places trying to get away from God, and we are all equally in need of grace. We are all irredeemable without it. And so the gospel, on one hand, it humbles us and shows us who we are without God's grace, but on the other hand, it says, You are covered by the blood and the grace of Jesus. And when God sees you, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ. And that makes us no longer the worst, but the best open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25 what we're going to do is again look at Paul's testimony please don't tune it out Uh, I know you've heard it a few times now but it's important for how Paul shares this here and there are lots of things that Paul will share as he talks about this testimony and I'm going to talk about those in the coming weeks but I really want to talk about this idea of how Paul looks back to his life before and his life now and what he speaks about today. Where we are at is that Paul has now made an appeal to Caesar. He has said, I want to go and have Caesar try my case because the Jews are going to kill me if I go to the Jews. And so now this guy named Festus has to send Paul there. And what you're going to see in part of the text today is how people see Paul and his beliefs, how the Roman officials see the things that Paul says and how they understood it. So, uh, Paul has said, I want to go to Caesar, and now this is what happens after that. Acts 25, starting in verse 13. This is where we go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answer them that it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. What you see is that, historically speaking, Festus was very level-headed. He is one of the few rulers in Judea that had this job that was actually like that. He died very shortly after this whole ordeal takes place with Paul. He replaced with somebody who was way worse. But you see how level-headed he actually was. Verse 17 So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody, for the decision of the emperor I order him to be held until I could send him to Caesar then Agrippa said to Festus I would like to hear the man myself tomorrow he said you will hear him now, Festus is new to his job, and usually when someone new steps into a job like this, they walk around and they meet all the other office holders around them. Uh, they, get, they go meet all the local dignitaries. Uh, here, this would be the royalty, which is King Agrippa. Still happens today, freshman congressmen get voted in, and they got to go around and meet all the old congressmen and kiss the ring, so to speak, because politics are dumb. I mean politics are nothing if, if not done, but that happens here too. Now, as some background, the Romans liked to govern through local aristocracies where possible because it meant getting other people to do the dirty work, and if something didn't work out, they could blame that guy and get rid of that guy and say it's, it's his fault. And this becomes the problem in Israel, more specifically Judea. They had placed these guys named Herod in charge. The first one was Herod the Great, and this resulted in what we know as the Herodian dynasty, And so Herod, after he dies, has all of these different... Uh, people come after him with the name of Herod and they all wanted a little piece of power but they're all mostly completely incompetent. Uh, Herod's kingdom after he died was divided and redivided by Rome trying to find a way to get it to uh, rule just a little bit better. And so they sent prefects and procurators and we would call these governors like Felix and Pontius Pilate and and Festus. Like in Acts 12 you've already met Herod Agrippa I. He attacks the church of God. Uh, He claims to be God god and then he dies uh then agrippa the first or then this agrippa here agrippa the second is actually his son he is one of the great grandsons of herod the great and this agrippa is actually liked by both the jews and the romans now so rome divides power at this point in israel between three people the roman governor festus uh, the Jewish high priest who had a very small amount, and King Agrippa. And this is why King Agrippa comes. He is coming to meet the new governor who is there. Now, this is interesting, though, but it says that Agrippa brought with him Bernice. And you don't see this in what's going on here, but if they had gossip magazines back then, Bernice would have been on the cover every other week. Bernice was, wait for it, Agrippa's sister. Yes, Full-on Game of Thrones. That's what's happening here. Uh, You have Agrippa and Bernice, and they would travel together, and they lived together. Uh, Most historians think they had some sort of incestuous relationship together. At one point, Bernice had been married to her uncle, Herod of Chalcis, Uh, another uncle, yes. And after his death, she sets up house with Agrippa. Another point, uh, she marries the king of Cilicia. People think that's to get them to stop the rumors about the incest, but she's only there for a little bit and then goes back to Agrippa again. She will later have an affair with Titus, the adopted son of Vespasian, one of the emperors of Rome. Titus becomes an emperor of Rome, and Luke doesn't talk about any of this. But if you were one of the original readers and you read Agrippa and Bernice, the first readers would have been like, oh, really, Bernice? Like N.T. Wright says it's like a story of like a traveling evangelist who sat down to have dinner with Marilyn Monroe and someone took a picture of it. So these are the two that are there. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, of course they do, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish nation petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in staying a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so what you get here is kind of the idea of how the Romans saw the whole dispute between Paul and the Jewish leaders. There There is no question that Paul is now supposed to go to Caesar. He is a Roman citizen. He has asked for that right, and so he gets to go. But you just don't send someone to Caesar without telling Caesar why. He doesn't know what to say. And so what he really says here is, Agrippa, can you help me write the letter? Now, they ask. he asks Agrippa this because Agrippa, Agrippa was Jewish. He followed the Jewish laws, and that's why the Jewish people loved him. So he's like, maybe you can help me to understand what is going on. But how does Festus describe it? It's very interesting. Like think about how people who have no idea about Christianity talk about Christianity today. <laughs> there's some TV shows written by people who are just like that. But this is how the faith appeared to them. It was a matter of disputes about the Jewish religion and some dead man called Jesus that Rome had killed. And there's no doubt about that because the Romans are good at killing people. And yet Paul asserted was alive. Not that he didn't die, but he was resurrected. And there's no doubt about that because Paul keeps talking about that. That's what he said. And this is not any type of crime that anybody in Rome would have really been concerned about at all. And what you see is that these people, these pagans are starting to have to deal with the ideas of resurrection, of new life. What does it mean this announcement that this Paul is saying over and over? That it's not just heaven someday but it's life with Jesus here and now. What does that actually mean? And so right here, if if you have kids and you want to take care of them or get coffee and need a break, we're going to put up a slide right here. I'm going to ask you two questions. You can pause it and then journal it and write down the answers or just pause it while this is going on. Take care and then hit play right afterwards. But these are my two questions in this. How would others who don't know Jesus but know you describe faith in Jesus based upon your life? And my second question is this, where they misunderstand faith in Jesus, how could you help them to understand better? So those are my two questions, because what Paul is going to do now is help them to understand better. So here we go. Acts 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Agrippa is now driving this train. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And now instead of me just reading you Paul's testimony again, I have some people who I've asked to help me do that for you. And so there's going to be three of them. It's going to cycle through them. But I wanted this so maybe it would help you to latch onto it a little bit better. So here you go. I
1: consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore I beg you to listen to me
2: patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead?
1: In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests.
2: At midday, O king, I saw the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting
1: me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting.
3: But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes
1: For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me.
3: To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to
2: pass. that That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles.
0: So if you notice certain words that Paul uses throughout that testimony of what happened in his life, he will use words like throwing the saints in prison. He will use words like enraging fury. I persecuted. I punished them. And then Paul talks about how he meets Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He speaks to Paul, rescues him, and tells Paul that the salvation he is bringing is for all people. And Paul says that's the reason that the Jews seized me as I was saying this salvation is for all people so then Paul uh, at the end of this, this is what happens, Acts 26 verse 24, and as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, so Festus breaks in, like takes over for Agrippa, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul you were out of your mind, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king, that's Agrippa, knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. It's like, I'm not right now talking to you Festus, right now I am talking at king agrippa for i am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner what that means is it wasn't some hidden thing someone didn't steal jesus body and run off with it it has been done fully out there that they've been talking about the resurrection and jesus appeared to people and it's not a secret people know that that's what he's saying King Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I word to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now, over the next couple of weeks after this week, I'm going to talk about that, the except for these chains, why Paul, feste, why Paul says, why Festus says that Paul says you know, you're out of your mind, why he says that in there. And you know, Paul also does this other thing called kicking against the goods. We're going to talk about all of that. But today, what I want you to see is how strongly there is a break between Saul before the road to Damascus and the Paul that comes about after the road to Damascus. And it kind of comes about, and when he talks about in verse 23 of chapter 26, Paul is talking about the law, and it's not just weird disputes about the law, but it comes to this point of talking about Jesus. In verse 23, he says that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. Both to our people and the Gentiles. That's what got Paul in trouble with the Jewish leaders the idea of reconciliation and restoration that comes about because of the resurrection. And Paul does this because of three rapid fire points. First, he says resurrection is rooted in the promises that God always made to their ancestors. Paul says that I believe and teach Everything our ancestors have ever spoken, all the promises to Abraham and all the patriarchs for millennia, that's what I believe and that's what I teach. And secondly, that this resurrection that he preaches is actually the promise that all Jews everywhere cling to whether they know it or not. That resurrection is what they're looking forward to. And what Paul says is what I teach is rooted in the worshiping life of Israel itself. And then he says that it is for this hope of resurrection and reconciliation that he is accused. And that has been Paul's main point every step along the way. Him preaching resurrection, as I said a couple weeks ago, is not some weird bolt-on thing like a bolt on the side of Frankenstein's neck that they're trying to log on to to the Jewish faith. It is the center of the Jewish faith. It is what they were all waiting for. And it happened. And Paul says, to my great surprise, the Messiah who died and rose from the dead was Jesus himself. And now Paul's whole push is that the new has arrived. There can actually be a gathering of people, both Jews and Gentiles, who can worship God together. In Jesus, God's fulfilling all the promises that he made to Abraham, that all the nations on the earth would be blessed through that line of people because that's who Jesus came through. And what the Jews thought was fixed forever, this thing called the law, had turned out to be, in God's point of view, only temporary. And that there is a brand new covenant in Christ that God is making with humankind. If you read the book of Galatians, that's in Paul's entire argument, the entire book. God is making all things new. That includes Paul, it includes us, it includes the Romans who are here. Paul, when he now talks about his story, he keeps coming back to these ideas of how God rescued him and why God rescued him. And depending on who he talks to, he will sometimes change the things that he emphasizes to help connect with the audience better. But Paul always includes the ideas of resurrection and new hope and new life, even for him who was the worst of sinners. And that is true for every single one of us. It is only by the grace of God that we have any goodness in what we do or say. And I'm not trying to pigeonhole these things together, but I think Paul looks at his life and speaks about his testimony the way that he does. So that he can make a point for everybody he talks to when he says, I am the worst of sinners. See, the truth is, as I said before, we all are. Are This is why Paul says what he says. This is why he tells his testimony the way that he does. Because he understands what the Bible says about sin and what it says about grace. And sin is a desire really to always try and get our own way. It is always rooted in pride. And Paul is willing to look at the worst of himself. How he could be the worst sinner imaginable. And yet know that God has still rescued him in that state. How he could look at the deceits of his own heart personally. And yet realize that Jesus steps in there and redeems him where he is. The understanding of him being the worst where he was and God's rescue was not to make him depressed. It was to make him humble. And this is the gospel Paul preaches. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul says this, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul says, my becoming a follower of Christ is an example to everybody. The word he uses there for example, it's two words stuck together. One word means hyper and one word means pattern. I am the hyper pattern. I'm the example of what this is. Jesus saved me, the worst of sinners, so I could be the hyper pattern of what he actually does in people's lives. And this is why there is no other event in the scriptures other than Jesus' death and resurrection that is given as much airtime and as many verses as the conversion of Paul. Why? Because Paul indicates that that's the reason why it's there, that Jesus is going to make use of him. For the rest of Paul's life, he has to live with what he did. He killed Christians. He'd see somebody whose son, brother, wife, mother, father, daughter that, that he'd killed. Maybe it's like, oh, look, there's Stephen's widow and his three little kids who now have no father. How does he deal with this conscience? How do you live with that? Well, you've got to read what he wrote. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying that he doesn't feel terrible for those things or, or guilt for the things that he did. But he realizes here and now that if there is a way for us to ever deal with our conscience, it has to be in coming to Christ. And what he's saying is if I can be turned around, if I can be turned into something great with all the things that I have done, so can you. You can also be saved by the grace of God. And that right there is the message that he shares of his defense. Now, it's interesting because in other places where Paul has time to write about things in more detail, usually in the prison letters while he sits in jail for these two years, all the times you see him start talking about his sin, he immediately goes to this place where he is filled with joy. Now, for us, think about this. Our understanding of the gospel If we say, yes, I understand, I'm horrible, and I'm a terrible person, and you understand what you are saved from, you know, yourself, and that kind of makes you depressed to the point that you never open your mouth, and you never speak about the good news of the gospel. Well, that means you don't really understand the gospel, because the gospel moves us to a place of joy and freedom because of what God has done. Paul's whole idea of his understanding of his life up to this point, all those finer finer points that he speaks about to Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and Felix and Claudius and all of these people moves him now to look at the king and say, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He turns it all into a moment to invite someone to trust in Jesus Christ as well, just like he has. And this is the way that Paul lives his life in prison, and outside of prison. And it came about because he didn't run from his past. He embraced it. He allowed God to redeem it and use it. This is why Paul will preach in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It doesn't say that God made Jesus sinful. It says that Made him sin. This means all of our sin, all the terribleness of who we are was laid upon Jesus. And Jesus wasn't an unwilling participant. Jesus takes it willingly upon himself. Think of the worst villain in a movie that you've seen. You're like, oh, that guy's terrible. He needs to be stopped. And the entire movie, the guy just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And finally at the end of it, you're like, oh yeah, he needed to get it. And all justice is poured out against him like Hans Gruber and Die Hard, or something like that. it's like the end of the movie, and boom, you're like, yes, that guy needed to get it. Finally, justice pours out, and then it's the end of the movie. Now, the beauty of the gospel is that all the evil of all of us was poured onto Jesus, and that's not the end of the movie. That's the beginning of our life. That's where we now get to live. That's the beginning of our story, not not the end. God made him sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And I know today there's a lot of people who say, well, I don't really sin. I don't really have anything that's wrong in my life. Well, you have to understand that that right there is pride. I mean, you might think that you don't do anything wrong, but when it comes down to you versus God, you're going to make decisions that follow you. That is rebellion. And that rebellion right there is something that Jesus died for. And we surrender because it was all laid upon Jesus, and Paul says that is the message that changed me. Jesus came into the world to save us. He came into the world to be in our place. Martin Luther said this, this is my paraphrase, the gospel is that you are more wicked than you ever dared believed, and you are more loved than you ever dared hope at the same time. When we trust Jesus with our lives, God sees us as holy, as without blame, the worst of us. Paul says to Agrippa, the most direct question yet, it seems like in the book of Acts, do you believe? And I think that's a question for us too. Do we really believe the gospel? What is the gospel that that we preach? Is Is it some angry political gospel? Is it something that really makes no difference in our lives? Or is it something That has gotten so deep down inside of us that it changes who we are and people begin to take notice. Again, it's it's that question. Other people in your life, if you know non-believers and you ask them, what do you think I believe? What do you think I hold to in my life that centers me and grounds me and rescues and, and redeems me? What is that? You should ask those people that question. Because it would be interesting to see how they see your life. If the gospel you say you believe has actually made any difference in your life. It's because the gospel must make a difference. It must change us into brand new people who live out differently in the world. The great grace and rescue we have received just like it did for Paul. I mean at Element every week we talk about this thing called communion. And I know we're not together right now. But if you would like to partake in communion, you must remember that communion is a reminder of what Jesus did. All that Paul talks about, God made him sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we remember in communion. And that's why we take a cracker or a piece of bread and we break it. It reminds us of Jesus' broken body. You dip it in wine or grape juice or drink wine or grape juice with it. It's a reminder of Jesus' blood that was shed for us. So that we, as a people, would understand and remember the great good news that we have received. Because it's not meant to leave us in a state of despair when we understand our brokenness. It's to lead us to places of freedom and joy. And today, if you're watching this message in this live stream, and you would like someone to pray with you about this. Like maybe you, you say you're a Christian, but it's never changed anything in your life. You're exactly the same way because you're trying to do things all on your own without the strength of Christ in your life. Well, we have people who would love to pray with you if you've never trusted Christ with your life. You know, I would say the same thing Paul does. Do you believe? I, I want you to believe. And if you would like to, send, send an email to connectourelement.org or write some on the side of the live stream if you're, if you're watching live on, on YouTube. But we would love to connect with you and talk with you and, and pray with you through certain things. Because if again, if you would like to give, giving is so much different during the time of COVID. But if you would like to, you can give on our website. You can you can send uh, a check to forty eight ninety Bethany Lane, Santa Maria, California nine three four five five. If you'd like to give, but we give because we understand that God gave so much to us. So giving is just part of our worship. It's just part of what we do. And I would encourage you this week to maybe talk to a few people and ask them what they think about what you really believe. What does your faith in Christ show? What does it look like? How would they interpret what you say you believe by how you actually live? And that's, and that's not in the end to make, make you feel bad. Again, Jesus died for all the places that we fall short. But I think it could help us to wake up a bit to understand how we live out the gospel in practical and real ways. Let's be a people who live out the great truth of God's rescue of all of us in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take us as a people and teach us to be those who understand the great grace that we have received, the great rescue that we have received and has been given to us. I ask that you would move all of us to a place that our lives we live differently because of what you have already done that we would understand the words you say on the cross when you say it is finished, that our sins have been paid for, the worst of us has been taken care of by you. And because of that, we get your righteousness laid upon us and we get to be the best, but it's not just about us. It's about our rescue and our restoration so you would send us out to be your people in this world and that those around us would see the difference that you have made in us so that you would be glorified and people would come to love and follow you because we live out the message of grace and hope and redemption. Father, teach us to truly live out what we say we believe. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. Amen.